This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Our guest today is Irene Lee. And my God, is she a powerhouse. A six-time James Beard nominee for Rising Star Chef, plus Zagat's 30 Under 30, Eater's Young Gun, and so much more, Irene has now become de facto one of the shining stars and entrepreneurs in the Boston culinary scene. She's a true community leader around Boston and beyond, especially noticed for her huge heart and her nimbleness in our post-COVID world. The youngest of three siblings who founded May May's Dumpling, a food truck, and that's oversimplifying by many leagues. Today, Irene operates like a contestant in an obstacle course, soaring over barriers as she goes. Let's have a listen. I will share, even though it makes me sound older than God, but I am, in fact, older than God, that, in fact, your mom was one of my friends in college. Yeah. Amazing. (laughs) It is amazing. It is amazing. She was wonderful and unflappable then, and I'm sure she's wonderful and unflappable now. Unflappable Um, is a perfect (laughs) word to describe her. (laughs) So... It's been really fun to watch you become one of the leaders of not just the Boston community, but the independent restaurant community in general. How did you, all three of you, your brother, your sister, and you get started and launch the incredible May May's Dumplings? Well, we grew up here in Boston with everything being centered around food. Our mom actually was not much of a cook, and our, our dad, we know historically, he would carry around his doctor's bag full of sauces and sometimes the occasional steak or some green veggies. So he was very popular at parties. But by the time I came around, they were both really working full time here in the medical field in Boston. And so we had housekeepers and nannies who taught us Chinese and cooked Chinese food for us. Were they all Chinese speaking nannies? Many of them were, but we also had nannies from France, from Wisconsin, from all sorts of places. So we grew up with a real diversity of foods in the home. And then of course we would also go out to eat and enjoy all the things that Boston has to offer. And on top of that, you know, our dad was a medical researcher and he was extremely dedicated to his work. But the rule was everybody had to be home at six o'clock to eat dinner at the table. And that went for the kids and for dad. And so I think that the dinner table was always really the center of our household. And that extended, of course, to family gatherings, reunions, vacations. And so even though we weren't necessarily cooking from a young age, we were really, really focused on food for as long as I can remember. Lots of families sit down to dinner, but they don't ultimately spawn three siblings who then go on and start restaurant empires. That's a great question. I think that for us, 
food was a way to communicate not only who we were, but also what we cared about, the things that we found interesting or captivating, as it were. My brother had been working in food in restaurants for a long time by the time we opened Maymay as a food truck in 2012. And my sister and I were both interested in a lot of issues around food, including how food is produced and grown and how it gets to the plate, and then what chefs and restaurant workers do uh, once the food gets into the restaurant. So I think we had an appreciation for the processes that go into creating food, and then a real enthusiasm just for eating. (laughs) And, you know, sort of add that all together and layer it on top of the sort of budding food truck scene in Boston. We got to thinking that maybe it would be interesting to see what would happen if we tried to open a food truck. And the rest, of course, spiraled completely out of control, leading to the opening of the restaurant in 2013. And then a few more projects sprinkled in with all of that. And then that took us right up to COVID. Well, and you skipped over the books and the TV show and the movies and the features and the sequels. (laughs) (laughs) And all the other things that I know you've done. But did you ever think about doing anything other than Chinese food and dumplings? Or was it always kind of, was that always the focus? Well, the priority for us was always around local food. I spent a semester in high school living on an organic farm in Vermont. Um, I got to know the vegetables and the animals really well um, and became really interested in in particular, how animals for meat are raised and then how they're slaughtered and processed and all the different inputs of that process. And so for us, the commitment was really about local food and serving food that we felt we had a connection to and therefore our guests would have a connection to. Because food tastes better when it has a story. Eating a tomato from your grandmother's garden, that's kind of the platonic ideal of a tomato in many ways, because you know its story. And so Chinese food was one of the ways for us to express our perspective on food. A lot of our food also was not at all Chinese, um, as many people on Yelp helpfully informed us. It's a very kind of specific perspective on Chinese food that comes from three kids who grew up just as American as we were Chinese. So was there a story that you all sat around with your grandmother making dumplings or? We certainly did some of that. Yeah. I mean, we had family traditions, um, making dumplings around the table, cooking Thanksgiving dinner, um, going to to Chinese banquets um, with all the cousins, you know, running around. Um, But in a lot of ways, I think connecting with food and with cooking was one of the ways that we also engaged with Chinese culture without it being mediated through our parents or our grandparents. My dad's parents actually ran restaurants in New York City and then in Westchester County, but I never met my grandfather and I never got to go to either of those restaurants. And so I know that there's this legacy and I have all of these incredible old photos and menus, but not having experienced it myself, this is a way that I connect to that side of our family history now. So somewhere in the family lore, you had this sense that it was possible, that people who were related to you, people can go into the food business and they can thrive and they can raise a son who then goes into medical school. It was at least part of the narrative in the family, if not a direct line. Yeah, I think it absolutely was. I mean, the the joke we would say is, oh, it skips a generation. (laughs) Hopefully becoming a doctor skips a generation too. But (laughs) I think that 
we recognize that there's a whole cohort of restaurants in this country that were opened out of necessity by immigrants, by people with limited resources for whom traditional modes of social mobility were not accessible. Our grandmother never really wanted her kids to take over the restaurant business. She wanted something else for them. And so we are very cognizant of the fact that we're in, in this incredibly privileged position where we can choose to do restaurant work because we love it, um, because we think it is an opportunity to make change and make the world a better place. Um, it can be about self-actualization and not about survival, which is what it, it was and still mm. is for so many people who work in the restaurant industry. I think we certainly feel a responsibility to do more than just survive as a restaurant business. And what was it like to start it with the, the three siblings? I think many people who've grown up in families are amazed that you could, and it seemed to be so seamless. Was it? Of course, it was not seamless at all, but it was a lot of fun. I'm actually eight and nine years younger than my older sister and brother. And they trusted me in a way that no sane business owner ever would have or should have. They allowed me to go crazy, to do whatever I wanted with the menu, to be as ridiculously principled about our food sourcing as I wanted to be. They did not try to disabuse me of any of my idealism. They let the industry do that to me instead. But you know, I think everything that I've been able to accomplish since opening the business, since taking over the business and buying both of them out, it's because they trusted me, maybe out of sheer stupidity, but they empowered me. And I don't think that ever would have happened for me if it had not been for them. So there were ups, there were downs. And I think that it was an incredible opportunity to get to know my brother and sister in a way that I never would have. So I will always be really grateful for that and for what it set us up for to do moving forward. Wow. So take me from you open the food truck, what you learned in the food truck, and then when you realized you had enough going on so that you could get to a bricks and mortar restaurant. Yeah. So it's kind of a misconception, I think, that we were doing so well with the food truck that we decided to expand. That's a nice version of the story. But the truth of the story to me is we were going to be in real trouble if we did not find our own kitchen to work out of, because you have to work out of a commissary kitchen. It's complicated. It's expensive. You have to pay for water, for towels, for dishwashing, for ice. And then you're sharing a kitchen with a lot of other people, which in a way is kind of like having someone come into your home while you're at work and they sleep in your bed and they use your toothbrush. And then you come back and you say, what is going on here? And so as we realized that the food truck could do good business, and especially actually, I should say, could do good catering business, we knew that we had to have a kitchen under our own control, mm -hmm. where we could expand and contract production accordingly. Also, where we could shelter our staff in the winter. A couple winters in, we said, no more. This is now a seasonal food <laughs> truck. Because we have a restaurant, we can put people in. Once we got a taste of what the restaurant allowed us, uh, we were not going to go back. Unlike some of the other incredible early food trucks, we did not double down and open more food trucks. There are a lot of reasons for that. The big one is just that we wanted to keep trying new stuff. We definitely did that. So what kind of new stuff? 
Well, for a little while, we had a line of sauces, sort of traditional Asian flavor profiles made with New England ingredients, the marriage of Chinese and New England that we're so fond of. We realized that running a packaged product line is totally different from the kind of food production that we were doing. We also wrote a book, Double Awesome Chinese Food. Um, it, which It is a great book. It is a great book. Thank about you. And every two weeks, I probably make something from that book. Oh, my goodness. That's such a treat to hear. And, you know, all credit is, is due to my sister on that one. And we also opened a, a shipping container kiosk, sort of a little lunch um, counter, almost like a food truck in the seaport. And we eventually wound that down. We closed up the sauce line and we decided, okay, the changes that we would like to make in the industry, we're going to achieve that by opening more restaurants. And so as late as March 15th, 2020, we were making moves to sign more leases and to open two new restaurants imminently. And then? <laughs> <laughs> and then COVID. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's funny, right before COVID really arrived in Boston, we had done this public facing event where we showed our profit and loss statements for the prior year to everybody. We said, you know, we do open book management at Maymay. Everybody on the staff sees the financials and learns to understand what they see every day in the business through the context of the financials. And as long as we're showing people, maybe we should just show everyone. Maybe it would be great for food writers and diners to start to understand what goes into running a restaurant. All of the tiny decisions that get made every single day that together create the dining experience. And you know, the moral of that story was really that it's just a pretty hard business. Average profit margin for an independent restaurant in the US is between three and 5%. And that was before COVID. And so we had wrapped up that event, we had felt that we jump started this really exciting conversation about transparency, about um, diner education, and then COVID arrived. And the difficulties of running a small restaurant business became more apparent than ever. And we did close the restaurant right away, actually before the order from the governor came out. Part of that was because I thought, oh gosh, you know, both my parents are doctors. I cannot mess around with public health. They also gave me a kind of healthy mistrust of what happens when health and safety and business are at odds with one another. And so we figured, okay, this will be a couple of weeks where we pause. And we'll take this opportunity to get a little bit more organized and work on some of those projects that have been piling up. And so we moved most of our team to remote work. So these were people who were cooks, dishwashers, servers, now logging onto Zoom every day and helping us with administrative projects and marketing and moving our classes online, all sorts of kind of wild stuff. Your dumpling classes for the public. Yes, yes, our dumpling classes, which previously we had done on-site at Maymay, and now we offer on Zoom and have been incredibly successful. One of the reasons we really made it through the pandemic. But we didn't see it as anything more than kind of an extended pause. Um, and slowly it became apparent that this was more of like a record scratch moment um, that would change everything. We didn't realize that until a few months in when COVID was really taking hold in the South and Southeast, um, when we saw that even after 
what happened in New York and Seattle and Boston, things were not turning around the way we had hoped. Then we started to think really hard about, okay, what, what's the next chapter? This is no longer a pause. This is something else entirely. We will be back with Irene Lee in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 Potato Chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. And we are back with May May's Irene Lee. Well, and that pause turned out to be a total time to reinvent what you did. Yeah. So right away, we said, look at these lines at the grocery store. I drive by Trader Joe's on my way to work every day and I can see the people. They're standing in line. It's cold out. They're trying to social distance. And then when they get into the grocery store, there's no pasta. Like how awful is that? And I also knew we buy our food from these big distributors and the supply chain is shifting, but there's still pasta and there's still toilet paper and, you know, all of those things. And so we started taking orders from customers, from staff, from other industry workers for their basic needs that we could help them access through our vendors. So we were selling groceries more or less at cost to a lot of folks. and. As we expanded that, we connected with Off Their Plate, which was a a very quickly formed organization that paid restaurants to feed frontline hospital workers. We did some of that feeding, producing meals for workers, and then we also piloted a grocery program for the workers at the field hospital here in Boston so that they could grab a big bag of fresh and stable groceries to take home with them. And that was something that I think in the first couple of weeks gave our team a lot of sense of purpose. That's a lot of quick shifting. Very impressive. I think it's how we coped. It's harder for us to sit still than it is to sort of scramble and try to figure something out. What COVID I think really highlighted is that there is abundance in many places and there is need in other places. And so connecting those dots is one of the ways that we can hopefully serve everybody. Out of that program, we also created what is now Project Restore Us, a fully-fledged 501c3. But it all started with us looking at the grocery landscape, thinking about the many, many undocumented workers from our industry and others who did not have access to unemployment funds, who were getting sick at, at very alarming rates, we said, we bet we could raise some money and try to get some food to these people. And on top of that, we could make it really culturally appropriate food and not the stuff that they might find at the food pantry. 
I bought a few thousand dollars of rice and beans and masa and onions and oranges. And I got a donation of paper bags from Whole Foods. And I called a bunch of friends and I worked with a community organization based in Everett. And I said, can you give me the names of 100 families, the addresses and phone numbers of 100 families who you think are having some real issues accessing food right now? And within a few days, we had put together this ridiculous system to get thousands of pounds of food out to vulnerable families in Everett. And thankfully, it got a lot more organized from there. But we really did the pilot out of Maymay and then collaborating with Tracy Chang from Pagu, as well as some other labor organizers and community organizers. To date, um, Project Restore Us has moved about 500 tons of food and has served a couple thousand families. And again, it was about connecting the right people to the right resources. We didn't invent anything new. I mean, we took on some volunteer labor. We created a social media presence, but the organizations were there. They had the money and we just connected them to the food. So that was, again, a really exciting piece of what we felt like was possible in COVID. It made us think about community in a different way. Lots of restaurants talk about community and the lowest hanging fruit in community is your customers, right? Because they're there every day. They pay for your services. COVID really forced us to think about who also is community, even if they can't pay for the food we make. Of course, it's our neighbors, it's our vendors, it's the people who uh, deliver our food all over the city, who bring us our food. That was a real, a real shift for me in terms of how I thought about what hospitality and community really means. Well, it's kind of incredible because you think of community and you think of people that you know, that you interact with, and you create a community by going two or three leagues beyond your your natural circle and essentially becoming a force in a world that you had no access to before. Yeah. It's, yeah. It created community with the volunteers. We actually, one anecdote that I, I always think about, we had one recipient, grocery recipient, who was an Amazon delivery driver. And when we brought 35 pounds of food to his doorstep, he texted the community organizer who had connected him with us. And he said, I've never had a gringo bring me anything. And now, because of COVID, gringos serve Latinos. That was just such a striking comment, a kind of a condemnation and kind of just, you know, what a world, right? That things get turned upside down in that way. And actually, the gringo who had brought him his food was a pretty decorated professor at Boston University, where Maymay is located. The idea that we can connect people, even if there's social distance, there's no contact, for people to feel like, oh, there's someone out there who is willing to do a little something extra to help me. Hopefully that's one of the things that that helped people kind of find their way through that time. You know, it's funny. I've been for another project doing a lot of work on the urgent food services that got set up during COVID. And one of the most important things is no questions asked. Mm. They didn't want to create any barriers to people getting the food they needed. And I was incredibly moved by that, that people would rather go hungry than be connected to the authorities in any way that Absolutely. And another piece of the movement that I was so inspired by was the community fridge movement here in our neighborhoods. We do have one outside of Maymay. We collaborated with a local community organizer 
And there are all different groups and individuals who bring things over to the fridge to fill it up. And then there are lots of folks who come by and empty it. Explain what the community fridge is to people who don't yeah, know about so it. The community fridge is a mutual aid project. And to your point, Louisa, it's no questions asked. Nobody owns the fridge or manages the fridge. It's a decentralized resource that anybody can give to and anybody can utilize. And sometimes people do both. You know, they bring over too many bananas that they bought and then they see a couple limes uh, and they decide to take those with them. And mutual aid is not something that has been a really present part of the anti-hunger community in a traditional sense here in Boston. And to see mutual aid kind of take the stage in this way has been very inspiring. And and to their credit, I think that the anti-hunger establishment, so to speak, has been extremely supportive of the fact that communities are finding other ways to take care of themselves, to take care of each other. When we opened the community fridge at Maymay, some of us wondered, you know, this is kind of like a student area and like Fenway is all built up now. Is anyone actually going to need this? Is this the neighborhood where we're supposed to have it? And I think we were really surprised to see that the fridge fills and empties sometimes multiple times a day. But just having it there is meeting some kind of need. Thinking about community, who are our neighbors who might be invisible to us unless we are providing free food with no questions asked? Real, real opportunity for us to reflect. And it's interesting, the other thing that I've learned in this process is the biggest issue for people if they're hungry is shame, that it is somehow their fault. And it's been sort of fascinating for me to even think about that myself. The fact that you don't have enough to feed yourself and your family, you must have done something wrong. There's a lot of shame. There are all these sort of cultural barriers, but we've had to solve that problem in different ways now. And that's, I hate to say silver linings, but it's one of the things that was generated out of the crisis um, that that gives me even more hope for how we move things forward from here. It's been an incredible time, but here we are where we are, and this is heading towards the end of 2021. What are you up to now and where are you going next? (laughs) You know, I feel like I won the lottery many times over, but Maymay is is doing well. We've transitioned the business into a dumpling company. So we are providing packaged dumplings and I have brought on two partners who are really running the show. We've also promoted a lot of our staff into production management roles and we are planning to expand our business into a new location in 2022 really, again, kind of the last thing I thought we would ever be doing. But making the decision to not reopen the restaurant as it was, to not go back to what we had been doing, it was very painful. But it was also really freeing to think we've reached this natural stopping point. I mean, COVID is natural in some ways, but we've reached the stopping point and this gives us a chance to step back and say, where is it we were going again and how did we think we were getting there? The other thing it's given me the opportunity to do is picture a life for myself or a a vocation that doesn't take place in restaurants in the way that it did before. So I had this incredible opportunity at Commonwealth Kitchen to run a program, it's called the Restaurant Resiliency Initiative, 
And we worked with a small cohort of Black and Latinx restaurant owners and basically provided wraparound support to help them understand their businesses and manage them as effectively as possible and to move through COVID and actually thrive after COVID. That was one of the most fulfilling pieces of work I've ever gotten to do because I've been so fortunate. We have made lots of mistakes at Maymay and we were able to afford them all essentially. And so to be able to pay it forward, to contribute to a future for Boston restaurants that is diverse, that is quirky, that is immigrant owned, that's family owned, that felt really, really good. Take me through one of the uh, one of the people you've worked with and the restaurant resiliency program. There's an amazing business called Achilitos Taqueria, and it's owned by a woman named Margaret and her husband Greg. And they have three locations, and they are really focused on super fresh Mexican food. They themselves are Dominican, and so they have made adjustments to serve the American appetite for what we think is Mexican food. Um, but there's also a real emphasis on freshness, and they make these incredible pupusas, which are not something that I grew up eating, but something that I plan to eat for the rest of my life. And <laughs> You know, the amazing thing about Margaret and Greg is that they are so driven to create, um, to create their own space, to create their own business, to create jobs. And then partway through the program, I found out that Margaret also has a full-time job. <laughs> she's an electrical engineer and she's running three food businesses because she feels passionate about it because building something really means a lot to her. And so, you know, sure, she can go to her day job, she can do plans, and I don't know, I don't even know really what electrical engineers do, but whatever she did, um, <laughs> it wasn't scratching the itch. It wasn't taking her where she wanted to be. And she was so focused on really maturing and professionalizing her business in a way that I just admired so much. And I think that she is the perfect example of why businesses need support. When she came into the program, I think she had felt isolated for a long time. And actually, she was a little standoffish because there was another Mexican restaurant in the cohort. And she sort of felt like, oh, I don't know, like, can we both be here? Like, is it okay? And by the end, she was the one putting her neck out there, sharing information, being a resource, offering help to the other businesses in the cohort. I mean, she really just was an incredible person to work with. And also to just see her transform, not even with the curriculum, but the building of community is what really changed her attitude. And that was just, it was honestly really magical to see. Well, you know, it, as I listen to you, I'm hearing quite a lot of themes of you looking at how you can help other people grow. Who helps you grow now? I hate to be bored <laughs> and I get bored probably a little more easily than I should. I have had incredible friends who have supported me during this really tough time, family members. I, I come from a, a highly accomplished family and I'm on this kind of unusual path. I also am very motivated by the times when I perceive unfairness or injustice. This machine kind of runs on spite. I get very worked up about things. And part of that is how I find myself pushing to change things or to learn new things. Because I get pissed off and I want to get involved. 
I do feel like I'm building my own patchwork and drawing from all different places. My dad passed away in 2015, but he was, as I said, a, a researcher and somebody who really prioritized mentoring. And even though I didn't know him that well, he had Alzheimer's disease, I do think that he is keeping an eye on me and keeping me on the right track. And so I do think about that a lot too. So the dumpling company, is your goal for that to be a national brand? Or what is your goal? We'd like to grow in that direction. We're going to be opening a facility that is mostly manufacturing with a tiny little dining room. We also are really motivated to support other businesses. There are so many consumer packaged products out there. Many of these businesses run by incredible women, incredible immigrants. We want to make sure that we're supporting this whole ecosystem. I think that's what we find most rewarding and what we feel like maybe only we can do. And so that's what I think motivates us to do that. It's funny, when we started going to farmer's markets, that's how we ultimately made this transition to packaged dumplings. And at a lot of the farmer's markets, we were in this kind of like stuffed foods wing of the market. We would be next to Jaju pierogi, Tex-Mex Eats tamales, and Del Sur empanadas, and Valicenti uh, tortellini. We're all kind of selling a very similar stuffed cultural comfort food. And so we actually created a product for Mother's Day this past year. We shipped out a bundle called Bundle of Love, or Stuffed with Love. We see so many opportunities for collaboration and for mutual support often get missed because this culture is so individualistic and it's so easy to become really focused on one's own business. We always get excited when we think about how we can throw a bigger party. And it's made our lives a lot more delicious. You are incredible. And I hope your mother is okay now, but you're not going to medical school. But there's still time. She'll get over it. Yeah, she likes to say that. <laughs> there's still time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Louisa. Go forth and conquer. I can't wait to see what's going to happen next, but uh, we'll tune back in. Thank you so much for your support. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 